Welcome back to the Looney Hour, episode five. Um, we got, uh, as always, we got Rich Diaz here with Acorn Macro Consulting, um, uh, macro research for institutional investors, hedge funds, etc. Extremely smart guy. And of course, we've got everyone's favorite boomer, as always, Keith Dicker, uh, 30 years with IceCap, or 30 years managing money professionally, uh, the founder um, and CEO here at IceCap Asset Management, uh, legend of the show. Keith, welcome back. Hey guys, good morning. Good morning to Steve. Right, you're pretty. You're up early compared to you. What your normal hours are? Yeah, it's uh, it's just six a.m. here in Maui. <laughs> so uh, living the good life. And what, what are the temperatures? What are the temperatures for you, Steve? Oh, it's like thirty degrees here. I'm hiding inside. <laughs> rich, nice rich, rich morning, just woke guys. up. Nice too. to see you guys. I just woke up. It's, <laughs> it's three p.m. There. <laughs> no, no. So let's see you guys. Morning. Morning. So guys, um, so guys, I'm I'm based in Halifax here, and we're getting you know some frost in the morning now on on the cars and and, and the leaves and stuff. But it's just beautiful, beautiful autumn weather. So we're uh, you know it's a bit cooler than where where Steve is enjoying his holiday. But it is, it is quite nice out here right now in, in the Maritimes. Let's get going, you. guys. Let's let's Struggling do here. episode oh, episode number five. Epi- episode five. Yeah, I just want to make a little bit of context here. We are filming and recording this on November the 11th, Remembrance Day. So I want to give a shout out uh, to all the vets out there. Um, lest we forget, uh, as good Canadian folks that we are, uh, we appreciate your service. Um, but, uh, you know, as, as usual, we don't want to beat a dead horse here. Uh, we will talk a little bit on some some of the headline inflationary data coming out Um you know, because it just came out yesterday and then recording this here today. But, uh, you know, U.S., we're, we're going to talk basically about, uh, you know, touch on a little bit on the inflation story here. But we kind of want to be, as Keith called it, an equal opportunist uh, show. And uh, we want to touch on, you know, the merits or at least the counter argument for deflation, um, because everybody's sort of on one side of the trade right now, which is inflation. Um, but we do want to talk on, you know, what is, what is the outcome with scenarios and how do, you know, Canadians, Canadian investors, uh, prepare for a possible deflationary shock, um, because that's always a possibility, but, uh, you know, first and foremost, want to touch on the U S CPI inflation coming in at 6.2%, uh, year over year, obviously, again, I think that, the economists and sort of the mainstream continues to sort of miss this. Um, you know, we've been told it's been, it's going to be transitory, transitory, and it seems like it's no longer transitory. And, and there's been that sort of funny meme on Twitter where it's like, you know, tell people it's inflation is transitory, then tell them it's going to be here for a little bit longer and then tell them inflation is good for you. And I feel like we're at that inflation is good for you story. Cause we're, I see, I saw a couple of headline articles coming out of that. Uh, you know, Rich, I don't know. You have any comments, at least from a, your data perspective, there on 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 what you're seeing from the inflationary side, not just in the U.S. but elsewhere. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's important to concede. A, so, I think you were mentioning that. You know, just to kind of re re re. Uh, I want to just uh, touch on just the, those different stages. So, we were told that there was going to be no inflation, then they were being told it was a little bit, but it's not as bad as you think. And then we were told, you know, stage three is that their inflation is transitory, and as you pointed out. We're about to be fed this uh, basically spoonful of sugar that inflation is actually good for us. Um, I think it's important to also, but to, to concede that some of the inflation is transitory. We've mentioned it on this podcast before. You know, maybe we'll get into beef prices, things that are acutely 
um, tied to supply chain issues and stuff like that. But I think what's for me, what the, the, the number that I spend the most of my time looking at, and I think I've gotten this number wrong in this podcast, but I'll get it right today, which is the sheltered component. Um, both in Canada and the U.S. Um, in Europe, they calculate CPI a bit different. But in, in the U.S., I know it's about 42% of core um, CPI, and, that, and that's rising. Um, and so, yes, you can have a situation where lots of the, part, uh, lots of, um, the components of CPI are, in fact, transitory. You're going to get massive, massive spikes. And as you know, supply catches up with demand, you'll obviously you know, you'll get less and less of that price pressure. But two things are important. One, I don't see the, the, price, the price changes going down. I don't you know, once those uh, prices go up, I don't think they're, we're ever going like, to see them you know, come off. So th- those prices are here to stay. Prices are sticky sort of to, on the up, on to going, going up. And the other thing is, I think that's different. Um, and I think we'll, we haven't really seen, um, you know, the service sector in many, in many parts of, of the world and, and the US and Canada still haven't quite, you know, come back. Um, and you're seeing those prices are also going to rise. They're going to catch up to the goods. Goods are more, you know, subject to supply uh, chain issues, whereas services, you know, they're lagging, obviously. And then you got the wage growth that we haven't even felt and we're seeing everywhere. I want to get in. I want to get into that wage growth because it's actually uh, an important topic here. But um, quick, quickly for for Canadians that are listening to this, um, because I've kind of ragged on the Canadian CPI and you know particularly the sh- the housing and shelter component because obviously I work in the industry and so I kind of see what's happening in the housing market from a feet on the ground perspective in terms of you know how much turnover rents are increasing and how much home price you know resale values are going up that the 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 CPI housing shelter component, it doesn't seem to reflect reality. Um, do you have any comments? Uh, are you able to explain to, to listeners? Because I think the U.S., in terms of how they quantify shelter, um, it's that, what is that? It's the re- owner's rent equivalent. What is it, What do they do in Canada? I think they, they quantify it a little bit differently. I think they, they base it off surveys, if I'm not mistaken. So that's for me, right? So I think, so I, I'm, I'm, I might get this wrong, but I think basically there's different components. Shelter is not just the owner equivalent rent. It's also this money and the amount of, um, sorry, the goods and services you will spend to operate your home. And so, you know, for example, and so and that on that part of, you know, the ledger, you actually are seeing very acute, um, you know, supply chain specific jumps right so if you want to buy paint or you know pay for someone to come and fix your you know your the siding on your house um those kinds of things are, are obviously very expensive and we've had and as a function of the labor market you know um issues etc and then but then there is also the very very large component which is the owner, owner um equivalent rent which is in part uh, reflecting a survey um, and the survey is due to how much you, you could rent your property, I think is something like that. And it's also a function of interest rates. So for example, if mortgage rates fall, that's part of your, you know, your, your, your kind of your, your math with respect to owner equivalent, right? Um, either way, you, you're having, you having a very, very large, however you slice it. Um, and even if I got all that wrong, which I probably nailed most of it, the reality is it's a very, very large component of your CPI basket and your core CPI basket and its contribution is rising steadily. Um, and I think that that's, I think that that's, that's sort of the reality of the situation. We're, we're only just seeing, in my view, that. And in the US, for example, I know it's a function of the fact that the re- rental vacancies are really, really low and months supply of housing is really low. And you and Steve, you can speak to rental vacancies in Canada because I'm curious actually on your, on your view on that. 
Yeah, well, I was going to say, Keith, uh, I mean, um, yeah, the, the rental market's definitely gotten a lot tighter. Uh, we are seeing rents. So, like, it's it's interesting because, like, so CMHC, for example, I think that they are sort of, like, the lead on on um, on on rental data. So, when you're looking at, like, rental price increases, they're, they're basically what it is is CMHC actually surveys, um, like, apartment owners, basically, right? So, they go to apartment owners and say, hey, what's your average rent roll? The problem is, is you have people that have been living in these apartments for 10 plus years that haven't haven't had any sort of rental turnovers and, and aren't facing market rents. So that's one of the issues. And number two is like, okay, I mean, what we've seen during the pandemic is everyone's been upsizing to a house or more space. So people are leaving the city, they're going and, and either they're buying a single family house in the suburbs or they're renting a single family house in the suburbs. If you've been trying to rent a single family house in the suburbs, the rents are up 25, 30%. You know, if you're trying to rent now a condo in downtown Vancouver, I mean, you're getting a 10% discount. So, but that won't really get picked up by CMHC's rental service because they aren't calling individual homeowners and saying, Hey, you know, we heard you had a, a house for rent. How much did you rent it out for? They're not doing that. So that doesn't really get picked up. So those, those rental numbers are kind of, again, misleading, but Keith, I mean, uh, to, to get you back on the show here, I mean, the cost of maintaining your mansion there must be getting pretty expensive, uh, you know? Any any comments? Yeah, life is good in, in the mansion. It's uh, no, but a couple interesting things on, on inflation for everyone. Um, so from two perspectives, you know, we're seeing prints now like five, six percent. As we talked about before, there are very few items that everyone is consuming on a regular basis that has only increased five or six percent. So whether it's beef or chicken or you're you know, filling your car or you're heating oil, like everything is going up. And it, this is a, a very big concern of this affecting everyone. Remember, though, this is taking discretionary money away from people for spending. So we'll talk about that effect in a second. But let's not forget about the poor central bankers out there, guys. They're this they're struggling right now. We should feel some, if not sympathy, some empathy for these guys. <laughs> because remember, their, their target is they, they arbitrarily chose a 2%. That's where they want to be for the level. And they had a real hard time just trying to either maintain that or over in Europe, for example. I mean, they, they were sub-zero for a long time. Uh, and now all of a sudden, it's it's shooting up there. Like it's twice their target level, maybe two and a half times. And they don't know what to do right now. So they are, that's why they're using this phase that, hey, it's transitory. You know, a year from now, it'll be back to flat or even, but we're still up, you know, 10% from two years before that. It, 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 is, it is kind of tough out there for those guys. So I, I think we need to be mindful of that because I think you know, they, they, a, have, they have feelings sorry. as well. They have feelings, Steve, these guys. Yeah. So we gotta, <laughs> Yeah, sorry to interrupt you, Keith. I only bring this up just because I had I had this question actually a couple times on Twitter um, asking about inflation, and I was trying to explain the the rate of change versus the overall sort of price level. Um, and so, because you know they were saying, "Oh, two percent inflation is transitory." So I was trying to explain this to a couple of people, but basically, the rate of change, as Keith is just kind of mentioning, the rate of change is basically year over year growth. So if you take, you know. Uh, October of this year and compared to the price levels of October of last year, prices are up, whatever, five, 6%. Um, those prices never come down. It's just next year in October, 2022, when we compare them against October, 2021, it might only, 
the growth might only be two or three percent. So the, the the rate of change is is decelerating or slowing, but the overall price level continues to go up. So I think that's important for people to understand. When central bankers say inflation is transitory, they don't mean that the prices are going to come down. They just mean the rate of change is going to slow back to around two percent where they want it to be. That's a really good point, Steve. And just to add to that, I think you know our job here not only is to have fun, is to talk about Canadian equity markets and Canadian macro, but also to sort of inform. Another point of that transitory thing is you nailed that bit. But I think it's also about the language. It's also about what causes that acceleration. And then what, you know, what caused the deceleration? And so there are things that even someone like me who's been fighting against this transitory narrative for months, not years now, would concede that there surely are transitory. For example, shipping rates are not going to be $45,000 a day forever, right? They, um, you know, they used to be $8,000 a day to, you know, to, to rent a, you know, a handy sized boat or a Panamax or whatever. Now they're 45. Eventually they'll come back down. So there's also that element I think is really, really important. Keith, you should start renting out your boat. <laughs> your yacht. Well, I'm embarrassed to say you know, I'm, a, I'm the son of a fisherman, but I, I don't have sea legs. So uh, <laughs> you shouldn't be embarrassed not, about that. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. It's one of those Honest things. jobs. Yeah, it is. Keith, it's hard work. It, it's Keith, like, you know, as a hockey player, he's a good, good hockey player there. Uh, Newfoundland guy used to play for the Sharks a few years ago. Uh, Ryan Clo, that that's his name. If you remember oh, him, man. hockey days. He's a good player. And uh, yeah, absolutely good, great kid. And uh, he had a, he had a great quote there a few years ago. He's being interviewed after a game, and the guy interviewed him said, "Well, you really worked hard tonight. You know, you, it was really hard work, you guys. And I could see it out there on the ice." And this guy Chloe looks at me and says, "He said that's not hard work. Hard work is pulling crab pots at four in the morning. That's hard work. So that's uh, oh, some legendary. Canadian stuff." But one yeah. thing, like speaking like at the personal level, um, you know, for Canadians. What is not happening and what, what is creating a lot of frustration is that wage growth, P- people's salaries, bonuses, compensation, it's just not increasing. So I, I know we're going to see some strikes coming up and things like that are happening. But when you're, you don't mind prices are going up as long as your compensation is going up to match it. But that's what's calling up, causing all the stress here right now today. And uh, it's kind of interesting. I saw the, I saw this report yesterday I was reading. It was U.S. focused, but it, I'm sure it carries over as well. So effectively, uh, so for this labor force survey, 4% of the labor force have left, have stopped working because they've made enough money in cryptocurrencies where they feel they don't have to work anymore. And what's also interesting is that the same number, another 4% roughly of, of older people who are not in that market, they've just been in equity markets and, and bond markets, you name it. They've also retired early over the last year because they've made more than enough in their investment portfolios where they consider, hey, they, they can leave. So the net is about 12 million less workers in the U.S., so whatever that equivalent would be in Canada, because, you know, there's a lot of crossover. So when we look at all, you know, the, the help wanted signs out there, whichever space you're looking at. And people say, oh, they can't find workers anywhere. A lot of people have just left the workforce because they've had some successful investments in, in their portfolio. So the other side of that, and we'll talk about that with the deflation conversation coming up now in a minute. The question everyone needs to ask is, what happens if that success turns into failure? 
In other words, what happens if we get a correction in equity markets? What happened if the correction is in the bond market? What if crypto markets had a big correction or something like that? And if the guys, things don't go linear. Most investors and you know, average people, they think whatever happened last week, last year will continue for the next 12, 15 months. That is not the case with, with financial markets. They are very volatile. And, and because of all the different policies that have now been implemented around the world by central banks and governments, it's actually increasing the opportunity for this to happen. So we could be in a situation, whether it's early next year, the middle of next year, maybe as soon as January, who knows? But if we get a large correction in financial markets, all of a sudden you get a loss of wealth on paper. So people feel less wealthy, they will spend less. People will have to return to the market again. So it does create an opportunity to get a bit of a, a, bit of a balance here coming out on, on the other side. So it, it has something to think about as well. I'd love to jump into that because I think that's a, that's a good segue. So first first and foremost, for uh, we're talking about... Um, the uh, the de- deflationary side because a lot of the pushback a lot of the pushback that i get um again this whole show is really just about you know explaining sort of you know economics and financial markets to canadians because the biggest one that i always get is you know, obviously everybody talks about housing because it's probably canadians largest you know piece of their net worth um they say oh you know interest rates let the central banks should hike interest rates um, because inflation is hot and Canadians have borrowed so much money and they took on debt and they should be penalized for over leveraging themselves. So we should just raise interest rates, you know, tank the housing market that will bring some affordability for the younger generation. Uh, and we'll all be good. And I think what I always try to stress and emphasize is, is something that Keith just mentioned is that when your net worth takes a hit, uh, at least on paper. Uh, so in, when 69% of Canadians own housing, if national house prices drop, let's just say 25%, um, consumer spending goes along with that. So the, there's something called like the wealth effect where as you become and feel wealthier, you know, your house goes up hundred grand and you tap that equity and go buy a boat or go on a vacation, you feel wealthier, you just go and spend money. When your largest, when your net worth gets cut by 20, 25%, people start to rein in spending and Rich, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think consumer spending as a percentage of GDP is about 65%. In Canada. Uh, yeah. It's roughly it, there. In US it's it, higher in Europe. It's probably a bit lower. Yeah, exactly. And uh, as Ray Dalio put it, you know, one, one person's uh, spending is another person's income basically. Right. So if spending starts to slow, that's someone else's income. And that just kind of result in, in, uh, in my opinion, would, there would be job layoffs and what Keith, correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, you know, I think that's my message anyways. Yeah. I mean, just add like one comment though. Um, you know, when people say consumer spending makes up what number you just said? 60, 65%? 65. Yeah, it's like 60, 65. it's in the mid 60s in Canada yeah. and it's like 75 what plus in the US. It's I mean, so that's implying a lot of you know discretionary spending, but it, just for people to know, healthcare is included in that. Yeah. And, and that, that is sticky. So the number isn't actually that high. It is maybe it's low 50s, I'm guessing. Uh, something along the, those lines. And like with Dalio, you know, with one person's uh, spending, another person's income, it's also the same on, on the asset side. So, um, you know, we do get permanent losses in the bond market, which, which I 
have a high, I think there's a high probability that does happen. And that's another person's asset that, that gets hit. But let's just jump over to the deflation conversation. Um, I'm ready. You know, a lot of people think that's crazy. You know, I, I can see the young guys there laughing and grinning right now. And yeah, that's Rich and, and Steve. Yeah. Steve and his Hawaiian mansion there right now. Just just setting all leisure. my cryptos over here. Yeah. I see them stacked up on the wall there. That's, that's pretty good. Um, however, and again, some people talk about, hey, you know, we have inflation right now. It's the same as what happened in the 70s and, and so forth. When you talk about Germany in the early part of the century, every period is, is there's some unique, some similar characteristics, but also they're, they're extremely different. So, for example, I mean, the whole German story, uh, you know, the reason they were printing money like paper all the time was because they, they lost access to debt markets. Inflation didn't wasn't created because they decided to print money. That was they created money because they didn't have any foreign money coming in. So that's one part of it. Um, and then you look at the whole, you know, what happened in the seventies, of course. So you think about it's just simply supply versus demand. So in, in the seventies, inflation was driven by demand. D demand was going up. Supply was basically flat. Like it wasn't. There was no supply shocks to the global economy back then. What's happening today is the opposite. Prices are going up because we have a supply shock to the system. Demand is roughly the same. So but both outcomes give you higher prices. So then we come back to, okay, what, you know, what could cause uh, demand to come off in, in this environment that we have today? And that's when we go back to financial markets. So if you look at today's environment relative to, say, the 70s or any other period, we have the most debt outstanding compared to any other moment in history. So it's same with Canadians, the Americans, Europeans, Japanese, and, and you name it. No one else has come close to this level before. It's taken increasingly more debt to produce the exact same amount of economic growth. So as an example, just say it took a dollar of debt to create 10 cents of growth, you know, 10 years ago. These are just made up numbers, by the way. Now it's taken $10 of debt to increase, to, to maintain that same 10 cents of growth. It's, it's just... Creating. It's causing, no, we need more debt just to continue with the same growth we have going on here right now. Most of that growth, though, has come from the government sector. So you talked earlier about you know, a multiplier. You mentioned that earlier, Steve. And um, if you think of the world as having private capital and public capital, you know, with private capital being the three of us and, and companies, households, the private sector is governments, governments are always less effective and efficient with deploying their capital. So what's happening today is, you know, with this multiplier, we're using the velocity of money for U.S. data is pretty easy to get or elsewhere. It continues to scream lower, and it's because it's taking more debt to produce less income. And at the same time, it's just becoming highly ineffective. So the probability of an accident taking place in debt markets right now, it continues to increase. And if that should happen, you go back to the whole Dalio comment that you made is that, we're going to have permanent losses in financial markets, specifically the bond markets. We'll have a, a negative wealth effect in, in other financial markets. And, and that's going to cause people's and households and government spending to come down as well. So, so again, we have this inflationary environment right now. But let's not, I'm just telling people that don't take your eye off the ball here because this could happen very quickly. And then it would be credible a year from now we're having, you know, loony. Happy, uh, sorry, the Looney Hour episode number 40. 
And now everyone's talking about deflation again. You know, three of us were saying, but wait, we might have inflation a year after. So again, it's just to keep everyone honest here with the potential setup that we have, because it is pretty big, especially in the bond market. So uh, Keith, just to, uh, sorry to interrupt there. Just um, look, look at Lacey Hunt's uh, recent piece here. So you talked about the diminishing returns from debt. So every, every dollar of debt that's produced um, in the U S for example, today, anyways, uh, produces 25, uh, 25 cents uh, of GDP, uh, every dollar, uh, it used to be 62 cents back in the 1800s. And then the, uh, mid 1990, 1940s, it was about 59 cents. So we're down to about 25 cents. So basically, uh, every, every dollar continues to produce less economic growth, uh, which Lacey Hunt refers to as the marginal, uh, production of, of debt or the marginal return of, of basically new debt that's created. So, and Japan, I think is that, you know, obviously is more indebted than the U S I think they're at about 15 cents right now. So, um, it's kind of, kind of the whole yeah, we're going down in Canada is in that same Can I boat. contextualize why that might be true? And I think it's really important to like, you know, all the, all the socialists out there who will graciously give uh, lend us their ear during this podcast. Um, I think it's, it's not all government spending was created equal. I think this is the problem and that we're sort of dealing with. And this is one of the issues I sort of have with massive government program. If governments told me that they were going to spend all my tax dollars building roads and hospitals, um, you know, gross fixed capital formation, e.g. investment, e.g. Um, CapEx, uh, building ports and rails and nuclear power plants and roads and bridges. I think, number one, more Canadians probably be happier accepting higher tax rates. But also, I think that you'd, you'd have a situation where at least you have sort of you have something to show for your money. And I think that the, the problem I think we're seeing and, I, and I, I'm, I'm happy to, you know, and what's really important is that overall government spending on CapEx has shrunk massively from the times. So obviously, you can't compare with the 40s when they're building, you know, nuclear silos and, and, uh, and you know, submarine hangars and et cetera, et cetera. Fine, fine. But, you know, government spending on the, the spending that's come over the last, let's say, 10, 15 years has been largely focused on consumption. Um, you know, and that's just, and so that, that's, I think a really, really important contributor to the, like weakening productivity growth and trying to desperate. And then, and the COVID was like, I mean, the classic, classic example of that, right. It was literally money, um, hand, it was money to pay for just short-term consumption and it, and it tacked on 20, 30%, um, debt to GDP for Canada. I, I don't know what it is for other countries, but I think that's a really important distinction, how and where that government, that money is spent, not necessarily that it is spent. Just, Keith, just to add to that, go ahead. I mean, just go one ahead. important point, and I, I know we've talked about this before as well, and uh, we've we've talked and written about it here at IceCap. Um, so we know now, maybe some, maybe some Canadians aren't aware of it, but the amount of money spent on the debt burden or interest burden out of Ottawa, it's it's the same amount that's being spent on education and healthcare. Like it's not, so you take those three pools of money for healthcare, education, and debt burden. This was before the pandemic. So this was back in, I think, 17 or 18 numbers. Um, it, it, again, every dollar that's coming in tax revenue to Ottawa, increasingly more and more of it is just going to service the debt, which comes back, you know, to, you know, to the guys at the, uh, the Bank of Canada. Because again, like they're in a hard spot, guys. We got to show them some empathy. Um, as soon if they try to trigger higher rates, it's it's really going to create a struggle 
for Ottawa as well as the provinces and how they can allocate their tax revenues. And then we'll see Rich get even um, more passionate about his view with towards government spending that that's coming up. But again, like circling the peg, like everything is linked together here. It, it's going to be real tough for governments if rates go higher. Because again, we have all this debt and they're, they're not going to be able to make efficient capital investments at all. You know, it really just become down to uh, you know, day-to-day spending. Because I'm sure they'll have, you know, increases for their wages and salaries too. So I mean, everyone wants to get paid. Just to summarize, do you say, so the government, the, the Canadian government, the Trudeau government, uh, their interest payments are equivalent to this the amount of spending on what do you say healthcare, education? What was the other one? Uh, you look at three parts: so healthcare as one, education as another, and then they call, they call it the interest burden. So the amount that they have have to allocate to the debt outstanding. So that would be even more now because now we're post the pandemic. You know, our, our deficits have shot up from. I mean, I, I bet you about eight or nine years ago, we were probably close to a balanced budget here in Canada, and maybe two or three billion running a deficit. Um, you know, we're going to be 40 billion plus this year, and they want to grow this even more. So, um, I mean, but that's you know, the, always the, the the running joke that I that I make to to, to people because they they come back and they think, oh, you know, Steve says interest rates can't go up. You know, he must be long eight pre-sale condos, and you know, is an overlevered fool. Uh, it's certainly not the case, but anyways, I always make the joke that I'm pretty confident my balance sheet personally is better than the federal government's balance sheet. So if if they want to start hiking interest rates, again, as you pointed out, it's the amount of this deficit spending and the interest payments on that. Like the Bank of Canada really is in a, is in a tough spot um, because what are they going to do? I mean, Rich, we pointed this out, I think, in one of your charts there, but uh, was it eighty-seven percent, roughly, of 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 the federal deficit has been financed by the Bank of Canada since two thousand nineteen? So it's like th- it's they're right. kind of holding hands, singing "Kumbaya." I mean, the Bank of Canada and the federal government are are one and the same, essentially. Well, uh, so I'm going to jump in here. So first of all, I think we, sh- I think the you know the veneer of independence. I think we can finally, finally put that to bed. Central banks are not independent. It's not clear that they were ever independent, but I think now it's very obvious that they're not. That's the first thing. The other thing is, I think really important to say is, um, you know, you know. In some ways, you were, you know, Keith said, you know, for every asset, there's somebody on the other side of the ledger, and there's liability, and vice versa, right? So if Canada's liabilities are, are assets held by certain people, g bondholders, and in a way, yeah, Canada's in trouble. But I think it's, we need to circle back to what Keith said, which is, you know, you know, if you, if I owe you a dollar, it's my problem. If I owe you a hundred million dollars, it's your problem. And I think, <laughs> and, and I think that the, I think one of the topics we wanted to discuss. Um, on this this week was financial repression and i think for me that that's it's, it's this issue is like how does this debt ever really get paid back you know and, and keith thinks they're not going to get paid back at all and i i agree um it relates to this the inflation just being above that interest rate in perpetuity and it's how it happened 1946 to 1960 there's lots of really smart people done a lot of work on this you know they had decent they had decent growth fine sure but really the key thing was governments were able to basically just maintain um, an inflation rate far, far above their borrowing costs through central bank intervention um, and central bank manipulation of that long end of the curve. And as a function of that, they were able to reduce their debt holdings in nominal terms significantly 
who lost bondholders. And I think that that's so for me that, that, that you know, that's that's my playbook going forward. You know, you have this inflation that's like not as is, is transitory. Sure, but it will stay higher for longer. You have central bankers that are not independent. They understand exactly what you said, which is Keith, which is you, you, uh, increasingly um, like a non-trivial sum of your revenue, tax revenue is used to spend on um, spend on paying interest payments. And so the only way you can really, really get out of that is if you deflate your, your debt. Um, and how do you deflate your debt? You just run this inflation at a much, much higher than I say, let's say should be. However, I mean, you can't do that. There's an issue. And then it brings us back to the deflation conversation, which we'll maybe touch on later. But you, you, there are risks that are associated with that, whether it's housing, whether it's equity market blow ups that you get as a result of, result of that. Um, so I, I don't know how you guys feel about that, that financial well, oppression view, but. So, yeah, I mean, I was chatting with Lynn Alden about this yesterday on Twitter, but she was saying, I think she had at one point in the mid 1940s, I think she was, she had pointed out that, uh, real rates were about negative 19%, uh, at one point, I think it didn't last very long, but still, um, now, yeah, Keith, I, I mean, how do you, how do you play this out? I mean, as a, as like a bond or, I mean, I know that, uh, you're pretty bullish, like long volatility, right. Which is essentially, um, you know, betting on, I know you can't speak on specific investments here, but basically betting, betting on uh, volatility in the, in financial markets and housing, that there's going to be a period of distress. Well, you're another way, you know, you're betting on bad things happening. And right. uh, sort of great thing with volatility is that when it does happen, it happens very quickly and it's, it's a burst. It doesn't last very long. And then you get these long periods of complacency. You know, people are lulled to sleep and uh, you, you can never have risk again. Risk never exists. And that's what we're experiencing right now. So in equity markets, you know, sovereign debt markets, credit markets, like corporate debt, um, crypto. crypto, for example, like no, no one's losing money, right? So you don't have to worry about that stuff. Um, so again, once we get, you know, a, a pretty big correction here in, in financial markets. And, and it will happen, guys. And anyone that says, hey, it's never going to happen, that's just being naive. Uh, that's what markets do. Uh, that is going to, first of all, it's going to give central banks cover not to raise rates. Because remember we talked a while ago, I think it was, uh, I think it was the lads over at uh, CIBC. CIBC. What's the CIBC? Yeah, 200 Bank. basis points over two years. Uh, Scotiabank, yeah, oh, Scotiabank. Scotiabank, yeah, yeah, at, at eight hikes. Actually, CIBC you know came out this week calling for six hikes. Ironically, sorry to interrupt here. CIBC, uh, Benjamin Tal came out and said there will be six rate hikes in the BOC between now and I think the end of 2022 or 23, yeah. anyways. But I said it's kind of ironic because if you look at CIBC's mortgage lending, <laughs> it's the highest it's ever been. Their lending growth, their mortgage lending growth is higher than it was. Uh, pre-2017 mortgage stress test when they actually got in a lot of hot water uh, from OSFI, the banking regulator, for uh, some um, unfavorable lending uh, conditions that they were creating. Yeah. But anyways, uh, that's neither here nor there. Keith, continue. Yeah, well, I mean, two things with that. First of all, people have to understand a, a bank's mortgage origination department, that is, a, they run a P&L, profit and loss. And they don't care what the future may call for. Hey, if the market is hot, they're they're going to run it. Like that, that's what that's what anybody would do, right? That's what capitalism is all about. Uh, and as well, people may not realize this, uh, but the economics departments or teams or units at the big banks, they are not they do not run a P and L. 
So they are not running a profit and loss. It's a cost uh, entity for every bank. You know, they have the salaries and computers and data fees, stuff like that. And, and that's it. You know, they don't generate direct revenue for the bank. So you're always going to see uh, disconnects between what the economist might say or, you know, with, with a lot of politicians these days, you know, don't do as I uh, do as I say, not as what I do, I think is, is the term that they use. How dare you, Keith? <laughs> How dare you, Rich? Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so that's sort of one thing with the banks. But uh, again, like all of these estimates by, by economists for rate hikes coming up, it is all based on having a zero or extremely low probability of some kind of economic or financial event. And should that happen, you're going to see a lot of these, you know, numbers, they're, they're going to you know, run them back again. So that's what we have coming up. But the other thing as well, though, I mean, we're going to see credit spreads start to rise and so forth. That, that's the, the mortgage market, basically. So you can have a situation where uh, government of Canada bond yields stay where they are. They stay flat. But banks are all of a sudden, you may get, again, these guys are running profit and loss books. Like, they're not dumb. Bankers are incredibly smart, the guys that are running them. And they're going to say, you know what? We have a higher probability of taking a loss in this market. Um, so we're going to actually increase what we're charging for mortgages, say, for the five-year term or, or something like that. And they'll come up with a reason for it. So all of a sudden, then, you know, it, it takes more of your uh, income to service that debt. But, uh, you know, that that's where we are on that side. Keith, I actually think... <clears throat> this maybe I don't know if this call is a prediction, but I think that the the bond market is probably going to do the Bank of Canada's job. Uh, I.e., uh, if you look at where five year fixed mortgages are now, I think they just went up again uh, this week. So RBC, for example, that's sort of gold standard here. Uh, they're they're advertising on a five year mortgage now at about two point nine percent. So if you remember during the pandemic lows, you can get a five year fixed around one point six. So now we're at two nine. I think once he's hit three percent, I think the housing market's going to slow down materially, uh, and that maybe will provide some air cover for the Bank of Canada to 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 sort of get away with. Hey, okay, all of a sudden the housing market's slowing down. You know, maybe this inflation narrative starts to to ease. And yeah, I mean, so so let's let's you know now we can sort of circle things up here because uh, you know one thing we didn't talk about yet was the financial market reaction to yesterday's American inflation data. And then then we have this other shift happening in, in all bond markets here in Canada as well. So let's talk about the bond market first, because that does directly affect the housing market, which affects Canadians and whether, you know, our houses are, you know, worth eight figures these days or, or not. Yeah. Yeah. And again, okay. the, the most, thanks the for most the laugh the, on that one. Okay. The <laughs> your house is already trying, in the eight I'm figures, trying right. Keith. <laughs> yeah. It's eight figures um, now. Uh, but what people may not realize, so in, in the bond market, uh, you can have an overnight bond. So that's basically the Bank of Canada rate you're looking at. And then you have long-term bonds, bonds that will mature, say, 10 years, 20, 30 years from now. If you link up the market interest rate for all the bonds in between, you, know, you create this graph, and we call it the yield curve. And usually, longer-term uh, interest rates are higher than short-term interest rates. That's just the way it works out. What's been happening over the last couple of weeks is that this uh, range or spread between short-term rates and long-term rates is getting tighter and tighter. So long-term rates are coming down, which means investors, they want to buy longer-term bonds. 
And that is usually an indicator or a signal that, hey, economic growth uh, may not be quite as strong as what everyone is expecting. So when you get this flattening of the yield curve, that's what we would call it in, in our world, uh, you know, that should take notice. Just say, hey, th- this is of interest right now. So, you know, we're talking about, hey, you know, maybe rates can do the Fed's job for them or Bank of Canada's job for them. Um, you know, we're probably on pace to have close to 1% GDP growth, I think, in Q1 coming up next year. I, th- I think that's what we're looking at, maybe for Q4 in the US. Um, you know, we're, again, we're getting slower growth. That, that could, you know, give again, give the central bank some cover here. Do you want to explain that? maybe sort of dumb it down for the, the the listener here but in terms of you get this this again your 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 yield curve usually slopes you know up up into the right so it's a, kind of like a steep curve right because the idea essentially is um you know you're tying your money if you're tying your money up for like a longer duration you would typically expect to have a higher return right you want to be compensated for for that sort of um now i'm known as a keep, term premium Term premium, exactly. And Keith is explaining that, okay, you get this yield curve flattening, uh, which means you're not really getting paid uh, additional for for tying your money up for longer term. And then Keith, we get into the yield curve inversion, which historically has signaled a recession. So I know we're not there yet, but I'm sure that people will start to Google that uh, in the very near future. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, explain the, the, the trigger there. Yeah, the, the I mean, the best way to... Yeah, of course, the best way to think about it, uh, if I lend money to Rich for uh, one year, um, and then I'm lending money to UC for 30 years, I know that I have a higher probability of getting paid back by Rich in one year than you pay me back in 30 years. Because you know a lot of things can happen in, in 30 years. And the bond market is always worried about bad things that are happening. So for that reason, I'm going to want Steve to pay me a higher interest rate on, on the bond that, that he just sold me. Uh, compared to the one that I'm doing here with, with Rich, when the economy begins to slow down, all of a sudden investors they they want to lock in a return. So the longer term bond they're going to get it. So they want to bid up that bond. So the price goes up and and the yield comes down on that bond. Meanwhile, central banks have just been you know running through um, you know their pressers over the last couple of weeks, and they're all saying, "Hey, we're going to raise rates. We're going to raise rates." So that's causing market short term rates to go up. So again, that's so you got short-term rates are going up, long-term rates are coming down, and that's what's causing the, this sort of flattening of the yield curve. And for the you know for listeners to know, the best environment in the bond market that indicates a strong, healthy economy is, is the opposite. So you get a ver- you're getting a sharp increase in the yield curve, so which means people are selling their bonds and they want to buy growth assets. So they're not afraid of equities, they're not afraid of commodities. No one's afraid of crypto, so that that doesn't come into play here. But again, it's remember it's it's all about a fear. It's a fear of losing money, and right now things are stacking up here that there's a bit of fear in the market, which also ties into the market reaction from yesterday. So when when the CPI number came out for the Americans, um, you know that that was one of the biggest sell-off days I've seen in currency markets over the last couple of years. So you go right back to the March of, of 2020 uh, pandemic, you know, during the darkest days. So but the way I work out my, my trade screen here for portfolios, um, you know, you, you have the US dollars on top and then every other currency underneath. And on a typical day, you can see, you know, commodity sensitive currencies are doing, you know, they're going the same direction. Emerging market currencies are in their direction. 
euro, yen, or you're doing something different. After yesterday's uh, CPI data, there was a massive sell-off in the bond world, which then got reflected in the currency world as well. So all of a sudden, if you get a surge in US dollars, which we had yesterday, so as an example, most currencies around about 1% um, you know, to the US dollar. Um, emerging market currencies were down more. The South African rand was about 2.5%. Like this is a full-on flight to quality. So you're running away from risk, running to safety. So another way to sort of, you know, reconcile or for the Americans sort out their inflation problem is to create a surging U.S. dollar. So remember, they don't care about the Canadians or the Japanese or Europeans or anyone else. They care about their own economy. If you get a stronger U.S. dollar and it happens very quickly and then stay steady at that level, uh, that's going to reduce inflation in the U.S. You know, it's going to hurt anyone else outside that are paying for commodities, which are priced in dollars, things like that. But again, we don't need to, you know, have this, you know, singular view that the only way for the central banks to combat inflation is to raise rates or, you know, to, to pull back on QE or something like that. You know, don't, again, don't be dismissive about another aspect, you know, which is the currency world. So again, yesterday was, was an enormous day in markets. And just a reminder that hey, when bad things happen, money gushes into the dollar, you know, when it gushes out of everything else. So it was a good day. It was a really great day for, uh, you know, someone who's really interested in financial markets and how they move. I think on the uh, deflation camp too, I mean, they could talk about what's happening in China and certainly, Rich, I mean, maybe you can comment on the on the role that they have in terms of, you know, um, commodity exposure, right? Like, Second, second largest world economy. If the, I, mean, I think they're the largest, like... they're the largest world economy on PPP terms now. I think that happened in 2015. Just yeah. for the for the record. So I mean, like I mean, how does that how does that play? It seems like G's trying to do this sort of. Someone called it this uh, controlled explosion. Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, trying to slowly um, rein in uh, their their credit binge in China and slowly trying to sort of, you know, rein I mean, in property market, et cetera, et cetera. Right. I mean, I think so. I mean, I, I might have to push, I might have to disagree with you there a little bit, Steve, because I think what the, the function, the what's happening with the Evergrande and all stuff is a function of the property market actions and the credit market, um, like reigning in the credit market that happened. We started, we started seeing actually two years ago. And so I think that, you know, and, and from what I'm seeing is that you're actually seeing a, a B, the PBOC being actually relatively dovish, right? They printed a, a 1 trillion yuan just a couple of weeks ago. You're starting to see M2 start to creep up a little bit. We're at the, we're at the um, you know, one of the things I like to look at is like the, something called the credit impulse. I think people put way too much stock into it, but at least it's something worth keeping an eye on. And that's the second derivative basically of the credit moves. Um, in China relative to GDP. And you can see that that's actually starting to bottom out. Um, and you can make the case that for a long time, China's policy was actually way too tight. Um, and now they're actually going to start loosening it. I think it, it relates to what you mentioned actually a couple of weeks ago, or maybe last week, but the zero China, the zero COVID policy in, in China to me is just, it's, it's completely unsustainable. It, it's just not, it's not, you're not connected to reality. And it's affecting the rest of the world and the rest of the world's affecting China, right? We're all sort of interconnected to quote my preschool teacher. Um, and, and I think that the reason why I think they have to sort of let up 
on this is because of the you know worries about deflationary fears. Like what could cause deflation? I mean, Keith's talked a lot about asset corrections. You've talked about wealth effects causing deflation. Well, I mean, continued supply chain disruptions could cause def deflation. I mean, you, you just can't do this in perpetuity. Um, I read, you know, the ISM, US ISM came out this last week or late last week or early this week. ISM, the highest, that. Oh, sorry. The US ISM is Institutes for Supply Management, and they produce a purchasing managers index. They do it for uh, manufacturing sector, and they do it for non-manufacturing services. Um, the manufacturing data is monthly, and it started in 1955, and it's a diffusion index. So they ask, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of purchasing managers about their inventory, their backlogs, their demand, their business activity, employment, pricing, a bunch of stuff. And you say, Rich, how could service surveys be so useful in predicting the economy? Uh, number one, it just is. <laughs> Empirically, it just has done an excellent job. Number two, these people have been doing it for a long, long time. They know exactly what they're doing. Um, and so what you, by watching this number, you can, you can sort of get a bead on what earnings are going to do, um, what GDP growth might do, how people are feeling. Of course, it doesn't always work perfectly. Nothing works perfectly, but it's, 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 a, it's a very, very important and, and it's a very strong and robust indicator of economic activity and health. But the reason I, I touched on that is because if you look at, you know, we, we're thinking about deflation. I think one of the really important things that we're sort of kind of, we just assume it's all going to work out. You know, we're quite complacent. As to use Keith's, you know, term de jour on the supply constraints, and this relates to China, right? So you have, um, so back to the back to the ISM for services for the U.S. It was the highest ever. Now this series only starts in 1998, I think. So you can't. It's not as you know, it doesn't have the same history as the manufacturing series, but it's the highest ever. I think it was 64 or something. But what you know, my some, you know, what I do in my job at Acorn was we go and we dig a little deeper, and if you read the actual report. Although, you know, you had a really, really strong, although demand for services sort of pushed up, you know, the aggregate of the indicator, the aggregate sort of diffusion, you know, there's just every single sector, service sector, I think there's like 10 or 11 or 12 of them is worried about supply and it's affecting. Um, so not, and supply is not just, you know, you know, it's supply basically is affecting their profitability and importantly, it's affecting their outlook. And if it affects their outlook, it's going to affect their um, investment decisions and their employment decisions. And then you eventually get sort of kind of um, a very negative spiral that could happen. And I think that that's one of the real things that, you know, talk about market complacency. I think there's way too much complacency on, on the supply chain. I mean, inventories across the border way, way, way down. You know, if you look at Germany as an example, it's export oriented economy. Why is Germ the rest of Europe employment's back to near peak? Right, France is back to peak. Italy's doing really well. Spain's doing really okay too, but Germany's employment is still way down. Why? Because they export so many cars. It's such an important part of the thing. And think about all the server, the, the tertiary, like the interconnected sort of um, kind of indirect industries that are, are affected by that. And so I think that, you know one of the things that I think is really quite deflationary is this supply chain thing. Um, if it doesn't get unstuck, unlocked. If, if, you know, central bank government, uh, if governments continue to blow out these deficits and bo artificially boost demand, and there's no kind of um, snapback from supply or unlocking supply, I think it, it could be, it could be really, really bad. You just, I, it's something, something I really think we, we're not, we're being way too complacent about. Is that a, is that a situation of like high prices cure high prices as well? Like, like at what point, like as Keith mentioned at the beginning of the show, right? Like clearly Canadians wages aren't keeping up with the pace of inflation. At what point do people just see, 
okay. I mean, we've just got news coming out here this week. Uh, this is going to be really t- tough news for a lot of Canadians. Uh, you know, Cargill, which is uh, Canada's one of North America's largest um, beef producers. Uh, you know, they're they're um, they account for roughly forty percent of Canada's uh, beef processing capacity. Uh, their workers are now going on strike, right? So wages aren't able to keep up with, uh, you know, the cost of living, they're going on strike and beef prices are already up and they're probably going to go even higher now. At what point do Canadians just say, you know what, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not shopping for, for steak. And, and you know what, we've got Christmas coming up here in the next month. Maybe, maybe consumer spending people say, you know what, I'm going to take a pause. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, I don't know. it's so important actually what you said. This. So last week you asked me about energy prices and I think that's really important. And just to give some context, it was like, well, if you have energy prices spike, if you have an extremely acute increase in the most important commodity to everyone's basically life, livelihood, et cetera, can you, in fact, can that spark a recession? Who knows, you know, it, it, it can for sure. It has in the past. Who knows what's going to happen this time? But I think what's really important is this idea that you're, you know, you're flirting with, Steve, which is a buyer strike as a right, which, which that, that's what it is. It's like, eventually, if you don't have the increase in asset, uh, asset wealth from your equity portfolio, or your house price portfolio, and you have um, increases in, in commodities and, and consumer goods and services that are 10, 15, 20, 30%, we all agree that the inflation number from Bank of Canada is far, far too low and does not reflect reality. I, I think we can all, I think that I can speak for the two of you guys and I say that. And so you have a situation where consumers just tap out. And again, that's like a really, I mean, I don't know how you feel about this, Keith, but I think that's like a material um, risk. I think uh, someone who remains quite bullish on equity markets, that's something that really worries me, right? Do people just say, you know, I'm not going to eat beef, I'm going to eat chicken, but that cascades, right? It's like, I'm only going to go out for dinner once, not twice. I'm not going to go see a movie. We're not going to go to Maui and and live the high life with Steve. We're going to go, we're going to do our, our vacation in PEI. And I think that, that, you know, you have a knock-on effect. If, if everyone is feeling poor at the same time, you have a situation where you have a, that inflation leads to a buyer strike. And I think we should, something we should really keep in the front of our mind. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, we, we only have so much discretionary income to spend. So if you're now, uh, you know, allocating more of that to your food and energy prices and your, you know, your wages are not going up, then you know, there is less money to spend on stuff. It's kind of interesting. I saw this morning, uh, for S&P 500, for the aggregate market, now Wall Street, they're aggressively hiking their earnings per share estimates for next year and the year after. Now, these guys are notoriously slow. They're, they're, they lag reality. No, they're, they're, <laughs> what's in their mind, it really lags with what's happening with reality. So, I, you know, I, I, think, I think, again, we're at this peak equity cycle where we are due for some kind of a movement coming back here and like in, and at the same time leaving with commodity markets so it was last week or week before you know uh, people were saying that hey oil is going to go to 100 no it's 120 no don't discount 200 and you know people have been pretty quiet about crude oil over the last couple of weeks now same thing with the copper market as well and like nat gas has collapsed but you know that's a very specific market of course depending on hey i can you know distribution and everything yeah. So it, it, again, uh, you know, inflation is the hot story right now. And, you know, I keep circling back to, you know, something could happen here that could really cause things to get flipped around. Uh, but just so everyone, you know, I'm, I know I'm sort of taking the other side a bit more aggressively. Um, a, again, our view of that, 
we could get a deflationary shock is if we get a financial accident of some kind. If it doesn't happen, we continue the trend along in like not huge, you know, exponential moves upwards in the market, just gradually increasing, you know, things can get sorted out. We'll all adapt to it. But if we do get some kind of a financial accident, which I think the probability is a lot higher than people are expecting, then yeah, we're, we're going to see a, a pretty big change in mood, you know, towards the whole inflation camp. And, you know, just probably the last word, uh, the part of the whole inflation story that should concern everyone, it, well, it concerns me the most because my view is extremely important. It should concern everyone else as well, is that, um, again, that you're supposed to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you guys stare at me. I'm like, I don't know if they know what the boomer is talking about. The best okay. jokes are the ones you have to explain, Keith. <laughs> yeah, I know. But, uh, but just back to our food prices, um, you know, you talked about the beef and chicken stuff. The cost of fertilizer is is going through the roof, Very which important. is driven by driven by nat gas and, and stuff. Uh, and if we get colder weather coming along, you know, you're, you're getting again. If you think back to the Arab attack. Spring, we think about the Arab Spring from a few years back. You know, it's all driven by food prices going higher. Uh, in that part of the world, and, and we get the same kind of event happening elsewhere um again it, it's going to create some, some stressful moments coming up here so um it's also important to just remember like uh, as a part of our basket food is much much smaller than it might be in tunisia or egypt or whatever right so when we see prices go up 30 percent, it's only 10 percent of our basket or when you're in egypt and tunisia and parts of africa and you know poorer parts of Europe. I mean, it could be 30, 40, 50% of your basket, you know, and, and for, and so, you know, they're right to get upset about it, but sorry, I think it's important that our listeners yeah. know that. Because about- at the same time, you know, central bank policies, um, they, they actually don't reach or benefit the people that everyone they, they believe is going to benefit. Right. So when they cut rates, here, here. It's, it's not helping lower income people at all. I mean, it's, it's, it's helping, you know, middle, upper class, wealthier people because they get asset price, you know, in inflation kicking in there. So, um, you know, again, when the banks, when they, when central banks, if they do start increasing interest rates again and they can't, again, central banks cannot control inflation, especially if it's on the supply side. It's, that, that's, that there's another conversation. But um, we do have this potential setup where, Lower income households, uh, not only in Canada, but across the US and Europe as well, they, they can really get this pinch here if rates start going up and food prices are going up and wages are not going up. So it's, I mean, a, I, uh, it, it's a great I mean, I, financial market opportunity because you want to look for displacement, being an objective investment manager. And, and you know that's where you get to really great opportunities to do some entries and, and exits in different markets. I think that's a I think that's a great way to end it. We've got a case of the deflation camp. I've never been more bearish on the lower middle class uh, of Canadians, uh, unfortunately. But uh, we'll we'll watch and see how this plays out. So we've got uh, the inflation story versus now uh, a case for some deflation. So um, as always, we'll be back next week for Looney Hour episode six next week. So thanks for tuning in.